The Athletic. Ruben Diaz, João Felix, Bernardo Silva, Enzo Fernandez, João Cancelo, the list goes on and on. But what makes the Benfica talent factory so special? And who'll be next off this superstar production line? The Athletic were granted special access to try and find out. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Enzo Fernandez has been removed from Benfica's website. He's no longer a Benfica player. They are actually paying 121 million euros. João Cancelo, Ruben Diaz. His first of the season, his first ever in the Champions League. Bernardo Silva, an absolutely brilliant counter-attacking goal from Manchester City. Mina with the header, great save from Edison. João Felix. And Ramosa! He has thundered that in! So with us for this one, the Athletics, Stuart James and Jack Lang. Um, You've been to Benfica to spend time at their academy, Stuart. Did it surprise you when you went? They were brilliant with me, Mark. I have to say, they they literally did give me access to all areas. I could speak to anyone I wanted. Um, Super impressed with everything they did, really. Um, I watched a lot of coaching from under-10s all the way through to uh, the B team um, and... Uh, spent a lot of time with players too. Um, have to say, like their manners were impeccable. Every player, every age, would come up to me and shake my hand and um, uh, you know say good day to me. Which they're little things, but I think they're little things that matter. And I think they tell you a bit about the culture within Benfica. Um, that that really really um, impressed me on in so many ways. It was just a little thing one lunchtime where there was suddenly a huge cheer went through the whole building. And um, I was like, what's going on there? And they, the under-23s were playing away from home. But there were televisions around the campus and they just scored an equaliser in an under-23 game. It wasn't an under-23 game that was going to win them the league. But that's just how connected everyone is there. And, you know, they tell stories about the, the boys going to watch the girls' team, the men going to watch the women's team. And all the age groups, really, there's this sort of desire to be in together. But at the same time, obviously... It's ultra competitive um, within that, you know, there's a small number of boys who are going to get the opportunity. And one thing that really did strike me was just a sheer number of boys that are there. There's more than 500 players in Benfica's academy system and as many as 40 in an age group. So, you know, under 13s has 40 boys in it. And you're thinking, crikey, I think the drive from the top, I think the the objective every season is to get two players from the academy um, into the first team. We can win the under-15s league, okay, but the real trophy is when those players achieve their dreams, when they play for Benfica in the stadium. Oh, they see the eagle, it's not a, a, better, a better feeling for them. We know that it's very impacting for them, but also for, for us. So, and even give us goosebumps when we think about it and when we see the, the boys. And then every time that they are on the bench, we are rooting at home, okay, put the kids, put the kids on the field, you can play, you can do it. And uh, so we enjoy when they are in there and when you see this season we started, and also with the first team manager now, with Roger Smith coming, the 
to feel the way he entrusts the players, and also the, from the president, but with the manager as well, the way he entrusts the young boys, it's, uh, it's inspiring as well for, for everyone. Yeah, that's a tall order when you're talking how high the bar is set at Benfica, but you're also thinking, that's 500 kids in that system. That's a, a lot who aren't going to make it. Is the, other, is the other objective to turn out, whilst two may make it with Benfica, to turn out, say, another eight every year who at least go on to have decent careers? Absolutely that, yeah. And, and one of the guys I spoke to actually did say to me that it's incredible. He said, you're, whenever you're watching another first-team game in Portugal, there's nearly always a former Benfica youth player playing for one of the teams. And obviously, they do see that as a success as well, rightly so. And interestingly, with the model they've got there where uh, they have the B team uh, plays in the Portuguese second division. So a lot of the players are in the academy are playing professional football for Benfica, albeit not for the first team before they've left the club, if that makes sense. Mm. So I think they said 27 academy players have played for Benfica's B team this season. So um, while only a very uh, small number are getting the first team opportunities, uh, naturally, others are playing football. And you're right to say that is still a success, clearly. Uh, and I would imagine, we talk about the competition inside the academy, Jack. Academy football is competitive across Europe. But within within Portugal, Benfica are competing with the other two in the big three, are they, for kids? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's kind of an arms race. You. So I, I suppose I come at this from having spoken to a lot of academy coaches who, you know, I've done a lot of these profiles of João Felix, Bernardo Silva, Ruben Diaz. So I've spoken to the, the coaches and it's quite rare to have an occasion when one of the boys hasn't just escaped the grasp of, uh, of one of the other big three. And I think actually just the structure of Portuguese football, um, you know, it plays into the hands of those big three. It's, I mean, it's, we're used to having a, a slightly changeable group of, of people who we consider title candidates, but in Portugal, it's, yeah, it's really established. Only only two clubs have won the league outside of Benfica, uh, Porto, and Sporting. You know, once a beat. So one was you know back in uh, the dawn of time, essentially. Only only one in recent decades, and that was twenty two years ago now. So by definition, there is a kind of a a gravitational pull towards these teams. In Stu's piece, uh, you know, it's one of the interesting things I thought was. The fact that even Benfica, it's not a massive country, Portugal, but even they have these regional centres to kind of, I guess, be the, uh, you know, the the veins sucking the, sucking is probably a, a bit of a cruel word, but bringing in like the lifeblood of the academy from all over Portugal. It's no real coincidence that you you will rarely find a Portuguese player like, oh my God, came through the system at Boa Vista. It's, it's generally one of these big three. And and you will have you you will have uh, um, been spoken to Stuart in your time there about all these talent centres that are that are around the country that Jack describes as sucking all these players into them. Yeah, and they, they're seen as being hugely important to Benfica because of the um, opportunity it gives them to bring in players from all over the country. So someone like Antonio Silva, the nineteen-year-old centre back who's burst through this season and been excellent, um, he was uh, training at a talent centre in the north. And uh, Gonzalo Ramos was uh, training at one in Faro. Now, 
they, they are really important because, for example, from the age of uh, 12, under 13 level, they can come and be residents at the main Benfica Academy in, in Lisbon. But that's obviously a really big ask for a young child to leave home at that age mm. and throw everything in with football. So with Antonio Silva, he did that for a little period and then he just couldn't settle. It wasn't an issue with the football, but he couldn't adapt to being away from home at such a young age. So he went back then to uh, his hometown and could carry on being uh, trained and coached there before coming back when he was a bit more mature. So I think those talent centres are seen as really, really important to Benfica. Um, it means that they're not restricted, obviously, to just having boys either from around Lisbon or um, staying uh, residentially at such a young age. They may be seen as really important in Benfica. Are, are they seen as fair in the rest of Portuguese <laughs> football, Jack? I mean, you know, imagine Liverpool going, oh, I tell you what, we need to set up a, a training youth centre in Brighton and one in Gillingham and one in Carlisle. You'd have the football clubs in Gillingham, Brighton and Carlisle going, what the, what the hell do you think you're doing? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. But at the same time, the structural setup of the Portuguese game is such that the dominance of these clubs is, you know, I'm not even sure if you are a mid-tier or a lower-tier, kind of a lower half-the-table Portuguese club. It's just what you're used to, I think, is, oh, my God, these three clubs are going to get all the players. So I I suppose if you were inventing a league from from scratch, you probably wouldn't want to grant them that level of uh, hegemony. But is it fair on the, on the smaller regional clubs? I mean, I guess not, but... That's, I suppose, that's not really Benfica's problem, right? And no, and you know, Porto and Sporting are also looking for players from all over the country. It's not, you know, it's not regionalized. And I suppose, you know, if you look at the English system, we don't have, we don't have that, but we do have big clubs snatching up players when they're sixteen, seventeen. Uh, so I suppose it's just a case of uh, when that transition happens, and and Benfica gain an advantage certainly by getting the players earlier um, and getting them used to a big club mentality which you saw firsthand early on at 13 or 14. I think it's important to to have guidelines that we have but it's it's important not to overcoaching or damage yeah. their talent because the game is the the players game not the coaches game yeah. and sometimes we feel fortunately not in Benfica but we feel some culture and I think the Portuguese culture since Mourinho appearance take the goals for the other line to sometimes we see the 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 game of the coaches and not the game of the players more pragmatic and try to like um, like a dance, so you have a choreography and the game is not a choreography. So they have to read the game, they have to adapt and they have to, to decide from themselves. So we help building the path, but the path for its own, it's, it's building from, from the players. And sometimes we see many coaches doing, doing like PlayStation and we want them to express themselves. What's the system for these for these kids, Stuart? I mean, you talk about the sheer numbers that they have. Do all teams play the same style, the same formation? Is that dictated to by whatever the first team does? 
do they do you know the the standard Ajax question you know do they rotate and one week play left back and then the next week play you know center forward um how how do they run these teams at academy level so they have a really clear what they call methodology and so from the in the younger age groups up to sort of under 12s they're doing a lot of 1v1 ball mastery they don't worry so much then about decision making and seeing other things on the pitch they want the boys to be really comfortable with the ball um, have that ability to take players on um, and then as they move a little bit older um, lots of the teams the basis will be playing 4-3-3 but they're not wedded to that and they'll have more what they call principles of play so for example they're looking to build close connections all over the pitch so they talk about moving up the pitch together um, it's very kind of I have to say Guardiola Man City like and hey probably no surprise there's a symmetry with the you know the players who've gone from Benfica to Man City so they are focusing on um, yeah, building these close connections, passing the way up the pitch. Um, and then uh, in terms of the positions, it's quite interesting. They like boys to be able to play in at least three positions. So they would talk, for example, um, about the work they've done with Bernardo Silva around that. Cancelo Ruben Diaz would have played as a number six. He would have played as a centre-back. He would have played as a right-back. We, we try to develop athletic uh, players that can um, be able to to perform different roles during the same game and this and this is a high value for the future if you as a coach you don't need to make two or three substitutions to change our our, our formation if you have players that play like a winger like like a, a midfielder like a striker you can change the rules without without changing the, the players and they think that is really conducive to, um, you know, the development of more rounded, more rounded footballers. So, yeah, they've got a, um, a very clear idea of how they want to do things. And I think also what helps with that, the feeling I got, Mark, was that, not the feeling, but reality, those coaches, a lot of them have been at Benfica for a long time. So, for example, the under-19s coach had been there 15 years and he'd started working with the under-12s. So, you know, you're, you're having this real deep understanding of the way that Benfica operate as a football club and the way they want to create and produce players um, and they're you know they're totally on the same page with all of that. You mentioned Ajax Mark obviously we think of Ajax and Barcelona as particularly clubs that have a kind of very defined philosophy of play. I like I find that interesting in Stu's piece because Benfica at first team level you haven't necessarily got a a strictly defined model um, so it's it's interesting that the the academy coaches do work to a certain um, structure. And and also, just to go back to what Stu said about the kind of the early years being about kind of relationship with the ball, that's, you know, I don't think that's uncommon, but I think they really do place a lot of emphasis on it there. I did a piece during the pandemic on how Benfica were coping with, uh, you know, football having completely stopped and all the boys in the, um, in the residential uh, part had to obviously go back to their hometowns and I spoke to Rodrigo Magalhães I think is the head of the academy Stu is that right yeah Rodrigo? I think he's te yeah technical coordinator technical same thing coordinator Jack, yeah. yeah and I said my question to him was this must really be affecting the boys in the under 17s under 18s the guys who are on the brink of the first team you know they potentially losing nine months a year when they should be making that transition be it to the B team or the edge of the first team I said that must be very difficult for them and he said, actually, I'm more concerned about the 12-year-olds, the 13-year-olds, 
just in terms of how much they're touching the ball at that age, how much they're playing the, the short passes. Um, he called it a golden phase. I, so I just thought that was interesting, you know, like even more emphasis being placed on those early years, just just the relationship with the ball before you even think about tactics or anything. And if we look at some of the players who have come through, I think about uh, Cancel or Felix, uh, Bernardo Silva being really good examples. Just the level of sheer comfort and technical mastery on the ball. You have to get that in there early because if not, it, it's hard to get it afterwards. That's interesting that because um, when I watched the last training session, which was um, just in the sort of shadows of the stadium, Jack, because um, the, the new training ground were new, it was built in 2006, is, is amazing. But the, the younger players, um, that training ground is being regenerated kind of thing. And you can see why that needs to happen in the nicest possible way. But anyway, I'm sitting there, Mark, in this dugout, um, watching the under 11s, under 12s, and these guys are going at each other one on one. And I started the interview, and they were doing that. And I finished the interview, and they were still doing that. And I was thinking, crikey, how long is this? Um, how long is this going on? And and it was unbelievably competitive as well, which one on one football will often be. But um, that just talks to the point that Jack was making, really, that that ball mastery is seen as so so important. And I can imagine them feeling like that about COVID because. Lots of people will say you don't get that time back. Lots of things that you learn at those ages, at young ages, become really, really embedded. And it's hard if you miss time and then you try and play catch up with that. So, Which I suppose, and, and not during the COVID period specifically, but just in general, brings us to, a, to another area within this, within this academy, Stuart, which is, and you wrote this, they, they employ 115 coaches, but actually... They, they employ around another 90 staff who specialise in everything from welfare and nutrition, medicine, psychology. So so the mental well-being is is evidently a priority as well, particularly, I'm assuming, because as, as you've already alluded to, some, some of these kids are living away from home. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's the sheer scale of that support staff is, is amazing. I mean, everywhere you go, there seems to be two or three Benfica staff, um, you know, whether it's in the gym or um, uh, in relation to education, the residential facilities, um, they literally, there's no stone left unturned with that. And I guess there can't be, because one of the things they talk about is they are almost becoming parents to these boys. Of course, is to be a professional footballer. I hope in the team of Benfica. It's a dream of all the guys that are here, but we know that it's very difficult. Uh, going back, like if I see uh, how many players arrived here when I was under 15 and now uh, the, the number of the guys that uh, were there that now are here it's shorter so it's always uh, decreasing the, the number yeah. of, of uh, players so it's a little bit difficult we know that we, we have to be with a little bit of luck we have to train every day and even with uh, training hard every day we don't know if uh, we're gonna make it yeah so yeah it's it's very difficult but the dream is is all, always there bearing in mind the boys are leaving home at such a young age as a well, huge in essence it's a boarding school isn't it yes, i mean it is that's a good way of putting it it is like that mark and and then you are it's a massive responsibility right you're not just trying to bring these guys through in terms of their football development arguably more important given we know the really small percentage that will make it is how you're bringing them through is young boys young men so in terms of education welfare even you know the, the number of sports psychologists they employ um all of that is really 
you know, really fascinating. You know, obviously I've got a really good picture of Benfica. I'm sure there will be some boys who've been released and feel upset and let down as there will be anywhere. But I think they do, from what I saw, as much as they possibly can. Now, some parents will still, it's interesting, one of the boys I spoke to, he said his parents said at 12, he's not ready to go. And the boy felt exactly the same way, that he, he said they felt it was too much for him to take on at that point. And then he moved a bit like Antonio Silva. He, he, he went then later on. It, it, it is a pretty amazing place, I have to say. But at the same time, I mean, it's not cheap here, Jack. It, it costs 10 to 12 million euros a year to, to run, 10 to, you know, nearly 11 to 13 million dollars a year for our uh, American listeners. That That is some investment, which they need to then get back, presumably, by selling the, the kids on eventually. Yeah, that's right. But I, I suppose you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And and once, you know, even the last two, three, four, five years, you can name plenty of players who uh, who will help them recoup that and cover it for four or five years. Uh, even in the squad now, Antonio Silva, um, Stu has mentioned, you've got Gonzalo Hamlisch, the striker, he's going to fetch, I would assume, minimum 60, 70 million in the current market if he goes next summer or the summer after. Uh, Florentino, who is kind of a, the midfield general now, Enzo Fernandez has left. He's kind of he went away to Monaco for a bit, and now he's back and he's looking a kind of a Champions League player. He'll fetch a big fee at some stage, and then you've got the next the next group coming through. It's kind of a it's a virtuous cycle, isn't it? Because the more uh, I suppose the more you invest, the more likely you are to have those sales. The more likely you are to tempt kids and think, okay, well these guys get a chance at Benfica. I think that's quite a quite an important part of it is that it's it's not a club that buys that tends to buy 60 70 million pound players for the first team if you look at the first team now i'm sure we'll talk a bit about their champions league run in a minute they've done brilliantly but you don't look at that team and think wow that's star studded it's kind of it's veterans who are whose value had dipped nicolas mm-hmm. otamandi being a good being a good example you've got joan malio who's kind of had adventures off elsewhere in Europe and didn't quite make it, but has returned and become a very solid player. And then you've got the guys who are given a chance. The B, the B team to the A team is a really fruitful transition for them. All of the all of the guys kind of seem to make that step up with the minimum of, of fuss and they do get a chance in the first team, which then valorizes them more. Um, just on the, um, on the markets they look at, at academy level... Do they go further afield, Jack, than than their own country, Benfica? Do, do rules allow them to? Can can they? I mean, the obvious one is obviously with the link in the language is looking at the at the Brazilian market. But are are they able to go further afield, or do they just like to focus domestically? I think it's. I don't know whether this has been intentional, but there seems to have been a slight pivot towards domestic in the last, let's say. 10 years so you still get players Enzo Fernandez was someone who they got for I think including add-ons 18 million euros and sold him for 100 six months later so they, they are I think they're still alert to those South American deals but if you look in the past you know Benfica I think 10 years ago were more known for being a kind of a landing spot for Brazilians South Americans uh, David Luiz Hamiris both kind of these kind of players who they'd get for a little investment, you know, not not small money, but 10, 
15 million and then sell them on a year or two later for massive money. Um, I think there's still, you know, Enzo would suggest they're still alert to those possibilities, but we associate them now, given the recent outflux of players, more with the kind of uh, homegrown, developed players. And I would assume that that is probably more economically viable for them as well because they're not, you know, they're not spending 20 million pounds on Joao Felix before they sell him. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hello, Matt Davis-Adams here, host of Straight Outta Cobham, the Athletic's dedicated Chelsea FC podcast. It's set to be a season-defining week for the Blues and Graham Potter with the Dortmund D-Day in the Champions League and continued attempts to get back on track in the Premier League. So come and join us as we go deep on all the Blues news in the company of the Athletics' Chelsea experts. There's also unrivaled coverage of the women's team, they're brilliant, and the academy sides, they're pretty handy too. So if you've got blue blood or you just enjoy a good rubberneck, come and join us for Straight Out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. There'll be fans, Stuart, I don't know, Arsenal fans or Manchester United fans listening to this or Chelsea fans and go, well, how much different is this really to our own academy? We, we, we'll have support staff. We'll, we, we, you know, look to bring players through to the first team. It's very, it's very important. I mean, did you sense it was unique or did you just sense it is one of the best in Europe alongside maybe another four or five? I mean, Jack, Jack mentioned Barcelona, of course. Yeah, that's a good question because I think that there's, you, you talk about some of those other academies. I've seen what goes on at Cobham, at Chelsea. I know there's really excellent academy um, work that's been going on there for years. I think the big thing you've got at Benfica probably and Jack's obviously alluded to this, is is that there is a clear pathway. So, you know, they're not just developing, doing really good work in the academy and thinking, will these guys get a chance? They know they will if they're good enough. I mean, Antonio Silva, I say that's pretty unusual for, I don't know what you think, Jack, a 19-year-old centre-back to go and play first-team football at the highest level in the Champions League. If Chelsea had an exceptional 19-year-old centre-back, would he play? Well, no, it would be Mark Gurhey and he'd be going out on loan somewhere. Yeah, so, they tend to loan them to Brighton or Crystal Palace. Yeah, yeah, Colwell is a great example. Yeah. So um, that, that that's the reality of the situation. That said, it was interesting. When I was talking to the under-19s coach, um, he did make the point. Um, he, he sort of said, it's not always like this, mine. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well... We don't always have a first-team manager who's totally connected with bringing players through. Um, and um, you'll know more about him than me, Jack, for sure. But they spoke so highly of Roger Schmidt, the current coach. They felt he'd really embraced the academy. So when pre-season came around, he took 14 academy boys with him. Eventually, that was sort of whittled down to nine, but it was still nine. Mm. And, and they were looking at that. So A, they're doing really good work now. And B, they're thinking, and we've got a first-team coach who's going to give these kids an opportunity. Whereas sometimes perhaps they feel like at any club, the first team manager is so focused on results and can't really think anything other than in the short term. So I did feel 
a real positive vibe in that sense there at the minute that the club feels very connected. That's all great then under under the manager and how well connected they are. Do the fans accept this model? Because what you then see is obviously young talent eventually being sold off and you rebuild again. And it's a pattern that is repeated amongst many clubs in Europe. I do understand that, Jack. But there must be an element of, God, if we could just keep them all together, who knows? Who knows? Remember their 2-0 up in the, the Champions League last 16 tie as well. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Portuguese football is it's a high-pressure environment. Benfica fans particularly, uh, you know, they are the, maybe not the current Manchester United fans, they are the Manchester United fans of, of 10, 15 years ago. And they, they feel they have the divine right to be winning uh the league title and it hasn't been easy for them they've I think they've only won one of the last five um there's been a, a little bit of uh, managerial flux more than previously Jorge Jesus was kind of like a kind of a golden era for them and he was around for about six years it's been a little bit more choppy since then and it's coincided with Porto being a very you know having a very strong few years sporting have kind of come back to the table, won a, won a league title a couple of seasons ago under a young coach, Ruben Amorim. And so, yeah, I, I guess there is a kind of, there's a balance to be struck, right, between this being uh, an economic play and this being a, a football play. I think, so it's interesting this season, Enzo Fernandez not an academy prospect, but someone who they brought in. And I think their, the level of exasperation at him deciding to leave in January kind of hinted at they they saw this really as their their best season their best opportunity to mm. do something special in you know in four five six years miles ahead in the in the league they've only lost one game all season brilliant in the champions league you know got out of a group with uh juventus and psg in first place and so i think the fact that enzo fernandez kind of pushed for this move away they, they were really bending over backwards to make him stay till at least the summer uh, he was seen as kind of the centerpiece of what is, yeah, a, a team with massive potential uh, to go far in the Champions League, not just, you know, a, a last 16 plates, but quarters, semis, even a final. And so I think there is kind of, there's always a, a sense of we're slightly racing against time before we sell the next one or two. So I'm sure, yeah, for the fans, that must be a, that must be a little bit frustrating sometimes because we're fans of what happens on the pitch and not what's on the balance sheet, right? And Yeah, exactly. And, and I wondered whether, Stuart, well, and I know you were around the academy, whether they view that as, 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 as Jack says, this race against time. And who knows, Napoli may feel that as well, about you know, because the, the big, in inverted commas, clubs will be circling some of their talent, won't they? Uh, and Ajax in the past, again, go back to Ajax. Do they feel it's a race against time within the academy? You know, if they get to the last eight or the last four and then this side's going to be broken up. Or do the academy view it as actually quite exciting because then the next ones off the conveyor belt are going to be moving up and away we go again? Well, I think there's an element of the latter, but I definitely picked up on frustration, disappointment that they don't really get to see these players play for the first team for very long. In particular, Bernardo Silva, right, Jack? He's, you know, he was gone so quickly. And um, I think he's talked uh, a lot, Bernardo Silva, about coming back to Benfica at some point. But yeah, I remember putting this question to um, uh, Rodrigo, um, uh, who you mentioned earlier, Jack. Uh, and um, I said something like, he must be pleased. You know, you've got three stroke four with Gonzalo Guedes back. Um, 
on loan in the, in the first team living at academy players and he was like no it's not enough and I was quite taken aback and I said well, well what's enough and he said six or seven academy players in the first team winning the Champions League one of them getting the ball and I was like wow and it was said genuinely it wasn't like just for the mm. sake of it and like, he's been working there since 2006 he is like Benfica through and through and so yeah, it's wonderful that the players get this opportunity, but definitely to answer your point, there's an element of frustration there that they are gone so quickly. And that's not frustration with the players. They're realistic about it. If, you know, Manchester City are coming in and offering, you know, crazy money like they have done for Ruben Diaz or Jao Cancelo, they're not going to stay. But they would just love to see those boys, some of them who they've worked with from a really, really young age, just play for Benfica for a few seasons. And um, yeah, picking up again on what Jack said, I feel they've no one's saying they're going to win the Champions League this season, but I I do really think I, I picked up on that vibe that they feel they've got a really a good chance of going far in the tournament. And absolutely, you could tell there was frustration about Enzo Fernandez while I was there that, that he didn't see out the rest of this season. Oh my God, a favourite look. It's a cup competition, isn't it? A favourable draw. There's no reason why they couldn't be a semi finalist, is there? And how good would they? I just think it'd be so good for European football given their size and their history and also what we've we've talked about jack it'd be brilliant yeah and you've got porto still in with a, a decent shout as well it's um you know another season it's another middle finger to the people who would like who would want european football to be this this closed shop right um yeah i think it, just just that variety and then you know you, you look at as I said before, it's not a star-studded team. It's a team that's kind of, uh, it's got young talent, it's got some experienced heads and, and in Roger Schmidt, a really a really smart manager who himself is kind of, uh, I guess, bouncing back after his, kind of, his time at Leverkusen went a little bit south. So yeah, it's the kind of story we can all get behind and, and particularly this season when so many of the other big teams have question marks over them. I don't see any reason why they couldn't make a finals. Always uh, good to end a pod on a middle finger. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jack. Thank you, Stuart. Great work. I hope you enjoyed that. If you want to read more about this, then you can uh, on The Athletic. And the offer at the moment is you can subscribe for just £1.99 a month for a year. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.